Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Lisa Heineman, and I'd like to welcome you to the premier broadcast of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Together with my co-host, Johanna Schoen, I'll be bringing you interviews with authors about their outstanding new work on gender and sexuality. We have a very special guest to help us launch our new channel. She's Mara Vistendahl, author of Unnatural. Hello, I'm Lisa Heineman, and I'd like to welcome you to the premier broadcast of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Together with my co-host, Johanna Schoen, I'll be bringing you interviews with authors about their outstanding new work on gender and sexuality. We have a very special guest to help us launch our new channel. She's Mara Vistendahl, author of Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. This is an incredibly important book. I recommend it highly. I teach an undergraduate course on gender, sexuality, and human rights, and the class attracts a pretty well-informed bunch of students. But when we get to the subject of sun preference and its consequences, hundreds of millions of girls and women simply missing from the planet, the most common response I get from students is, I had no idea. I thought that I at least knew a thing or two about the topic, but after reading Mara's book, I'm going to be scrambling to update my lectures. Through deep investigative reporting, Mara takes us to parents, doctors, demographers, economists, a wide cast of characters, all with a hand in the phenomenon of sex-selective abortion. She shows us the dire consequences, because now the first generation of babies born to parents who could select according to sex have grown up, and a generation of young men unable to find mates has created a market for bride-selling and trafficking. Perhaps most shocking to Western audiences will be Mara's findings about how sex-selective abortion came to be so widespread in Asia. This is not a simple matter of cultural prejudice facilitated by technology. Instead, it's a tale of Western population planners frantic about population growth in underdeveloped countries who hoped that enabling parents to select the sex of their children would convince them to stop having so many. And in the end, the story comes back home. In the United States, couples undergoing in vitro fertilization also often select for sex. Next semester, all my students will be reading more of Vistendahl's book. You should read it, too. Please join us for the interview. Hello, Maura Fistenthal is our guest today. She's author of a wonderful new book, Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men by Public Affairs Book. This is a sobering work about sex-selective abortion in Asia and elsewhere, uh, about the practice and about its effects. As a historian, I'm also particularly interested in her story of how we came to be at this situation. Not quite as simple a story as a cultural preference for sons. We'll have a chance to talk about all of these things with Maura, but I'd like to welcome you first to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very delighted. Let me just start out by asking you a little bit about your own background. How did you get into this line of work? How did you become to come to be a, a science journalist? And how did you come to this work? Sure. Well, I, I was born in uh, Minnesota into a uh, family that had some background in Asia. We're, we were you know, quite typically a, a Scandinavian family. Um, but my mother had grown up partly in Taiwan and Singapore and Malaysia and had studied Chinese. And when she divorced my father, um, when I was five, she moved in with a um, Chinese woman who was a good friend of hers and who also had a, uh, was also a single mother. And so I, I grew up with you know, my brother and I and my kind of uh, Chinese brother. We, we grew up all in, in one household for a while. And so very early on, I got interested in in Chinese culture, I, I heard it a little. I heard the language a little bit at home, and um, started studying then myself in high school. And um, when I graduated from college and, and finished journalism school, I went moved to China to uh, 
start out there as a freelance journalist. And, and so really, I, uh, I, I was interested first and foremost in, in China and the Chinese language. And then from there, um, my interest expanded into, into other areas. Um, after being there for a few years, there were, you know, there were a number of issues that I ended up uh, reporting on again and again. And, th- and there was one that I, I just never really understood. Um, that was the, the sex ratio imbalance. It was something that would come up in the news from time to time. Uh, you'd see these numbers uh, every time a new survey came out, uh, every time a, a new uh, kind of sample survey or a new census came out in China. Uh, and the numbers are really dramatic. Uh, they show five boys born for every four girls. Um, yeah, the, the most recent census found 118 boys for 100 girls. And it, I just felt that this wasn't an issue that was very well explained. Uh, I had trouble really wrapping my head around it, and and particularly how how girls were disappearing and how couples were really opting for boys at a time when in many ways women and girls were better off than ever before in China, where there have been a lot of uh, social, important social changes. Uh, I mean, the big story of China is development and just moving forward, and, um, and, and that goes for women as well as men. Um, so it was just this, this question in my mind, how, why is this happening now? Um, of course, I'd, I'd grown up with a, a very strong Chinese woman, and and uh, with the sense of, you know, the, the culture supports some good degree of gender equality. And, and then I wanted to understand well, what's going on now that, that uh, fewer women are being born. Right. So we might have an expectation that, you know, if, if things are getting a little bit better for women or women are getting greater social status, a little more economic autonomy, that, um, that this would be a good time for a woman. But it, exactly at this time, this, uh, the, uh, the sex ratio really gets askew. Talk to us a little bit about the demographics. What's a normal sex ratio? What, what becomes an alarming sex ratio? How do you get to, to your number of 160 million missing girls and women in Asia? Well, in, in mo- the average human population, uh, the sex ratio of birth is around 105 boys for every 100 girls. Um, so slightly more boys are born than girls, but by the time we get to adulthood, that that pretty much evens out um, for for reasons we don't fully understand. Um, but in most populations, it's it's somewhat balanced, and maybe war throws it off for migration. Um, but until the 1980s, uh, we hadn't seen significantly skewed uh, sex ratios at birth, um, and uh, this is a a, a new phenomenon. It's it's come up in part because of uh, ultra, ultrasound, able to identify the sex of the fetus in the in the second trimester or even earlier, and um, so w- women are finding out the sex of the baby and then aborting um, based on their preference. And how do we? Um, you you study this phenomenon particularly in Asia, um, but I was interested to learn from your book that it's not limited to Asia. You find it in Albania. You're finding it in the Balkans. Um, talk a little bit as about the geography here. Sure. I well, I was originally just interested in how this is happening now in China at a at um, you know at a time when when the country is developing so quickly. Um, but then as I started looking into it. I saw that you know not just India, which is the the other country that's often mentioned in coverage of sex selection, but also in the Balkans, as you said, in Albania, uh, Vietnam, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, and uh, parts of Singapore. I mean, just a wide range of countries uh, that more boys are being born than girls, significantly more boys. Uh, and, I mean, the ratios that, that would not be possible um, in nature. And uh, what's common to these countries is that, to some degree, they're all developing pretty quickly. I mean, these aren't the poorest countries in the world. Uh, India also moving ahead very very rapidly, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, of course, were the you know two of the Asian tigers in the 1980s and 1990s, um, and so then I mean this this puzzle just got bigger for me. Uh, you, you have 
a group of countries with very different cultures, uh, very different political histories to, and um, political systems today, and and then a, but the same problem happening in in all of these places. And why is it? What's what are the common factors? Well, that that took some talking to demographers to figure out. I, I started my reporting, and throughout my reporting, I, I went to um, nine countries altogether, and I spoke with a lot of parents, uh, a lot of people on the ground to get their sense of what was going on. Um, but it really took talking to a demographer um, named Christoph Gilmodo, who is working on this on a, on a global scale, and he's he's looked at uh, all of these different countries and kind of tried to wrap his head around what's common uh, to all of them. And it took talking to him to get a sense of, of what's really happening uh, for me. One of the common factors is that in all these places, the, the birth rate has fallen very significantly in the past uh, three to four decades. So in China, you have the, the one-child policy, which is of course, put pressure on couples to, to limit their, uh, you know, limit themselves to one or two children. But also in India, the birth rate's fallen. And in Korea, the average woman had uh, six children in, the, uh, in 1960, and today she has just over one. Um, same thing happening in the Balkans. Uh, same thing happening in Eastern Europe, in, in Albania. So people in, in the past... 30 to 40 years, people just having far fewer children. And, and of course, if you're a, a woman in, in a culture where there is pressure to have a son and, uh, and suddenly you're only having one child instead of five, that, that really limits the chances that you're going to get the son. Um, and so that's a significant factor. Uh, the other thing is, is just uh, the overall level of medical technology improving. So women having more access to ultrasound, giving birth in hospitals, something that happens as countries develop, uh, as people move to cities. Um, and then the other, the other thread of the story, the thread that is not so easy to tell, particularly in the context of American politics, is that, is that abortion rates have been... Uh, pretty high in, in some of these countries as well. And that there was a history of abortion being introduced not as a woman's right, but as a method of population control. So it was a, these are the commonalities, but, but then you know, from one place to the next, people gave all sorts of different local reasons for why they, they needed to have a son. Right. So this is an interesting combination of factors all coming together. Um, it sounds like, you know, in a sense, if, if a woman's having four or five kids and the first one or two are daughters, that you keep trying for a son, right? But if you're only going to have one or two, pressure's on. Um, but uh, like you say, the, heart, the, the, the part of the story that's very, very hard to tell is the influence of the West and um, sort of you know, the, the, the scare of the, the so-called population bomb, Paul Ehrlich's famous book. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because I think that is a less-known part of the story, uh, the role of Western population fears, the role of Western technologies and medical professionals. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, well, well, traditionally, the sex selection has been told as a um, when it is when it is explained in in the press um, to some degree in the reports that NGOs put out, it's explained as the product of cultural traditions. So. Um, the argument goes that these are cultures where there's a very strong uh, emphasis on having a son. There's a lot of pressure on women to have one. And uh, generally, in the, in the overall culture, just measures that, uh, that promote having, you know, women have lower status, um, that sort of thing. And, and you'll see these old adages cited, um, I mean, China. There's a practice of uh, of naming your daughter um, something like Lai Di, which means bring of brother, and that was something that people did in villages mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. 40 years yeah. ago. It's a very sexist practice. Um, but what I found is that that's really only a 
maybe very small part of the story, if that is, if that is the story, and, and that there's this other thread of Western involvement in population policies of Asian countries that is you know, at least as important, if not much more important, in terms of, of uh, getting us to the situation today when we have so many more boys born than girls. Right. Um, because some preference didn't automatically translate into selective abortion until the last couple of decades, right? So no, something, well, something obviously changed from generations and generations of tradition, right? Sure. I mean, one doctor yeah. in, in India told me, well, if, if, um, if it was just the fact that, that we wanted a son and then you know, Indians would have, girls would have disappeared from India uh, four or 500 years ago. Right. Um, and, and you, you did not have, you you had female infanticide happening at moments throughout Indian and Chinese history, but not nearly on the same scale as sex selective abortion happens today, and um, and never continuously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was actually when I was in India, interviewing uh, doctors and interviewing activists, and um, you know they have a a pretty dark history of population control in that country, and several people I spoke with said, well you might want to look into that history when you're exploring this issue. Um, the, we think there's a link. And so uh, this was a totally new thread to the story to me, but um, I, I looked into it. And and I, I think there is, there is a significant link. I mean, the, it, it goes back to the 1950s when... Um, we had population, reliable population projections for the first time. Uh, the the uh, United Nations was issuing numbers looking at um, possible population growth uh, 20 to 30 years out. And people were living longer than ever before. Um, there were uh, you know, recent advances in public health and fewer people dying from tuberculosis, um, and, and especially in developing countries, just a lot of people uh, living into old age who wouldn't have um, reached that age in the, in the 1920s, 1930s. And as a result, there was a lot of concern over um, the, what became known as the population bomb or the population explosion. And, and you know, eventually this heightened into something like hysteria. That what's going to happen if people keep uh, having children and, and, you know, we don't take any measures to stop them? Um, so there were real reasons for being concerned, but you know, particularly in the context of 1950s, 1960s politics, uh, where <laughs> there, in America there's also a lot of concern about the spread of communism. Um, the West was losing control over um, colonies, its colonies around the world. And um, there was also a little bit of a of, um, us versus them uh, thing that developed, where, where you had Westerners worried about the population problem, um, but specifically worried about uh, China and India and about those countries spiraling out of control. So then, uh, at the time, you, organizations like the Population Council formed, um, the uh, Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, all started giving a lot of money toward population control. Um, Planned Parenthood was actually originally formed as a population control organization, very different from what it does today. Um, eventually, the UN Population Fund formed. And there was a lot of money going into this issue. Um, and, and one of the strategies that was put on the table eventually um, was to find a way to guarantee couples the, uh, the sex that they prefer when they, when they have children. Um, this was based on, on a, 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 a small body of research. So by the 1960s, uh, the population control organizations had done surveys looking at what some of the major barriers to women accepting contraception were. So why were, why were couples continuing to have children? And one of the things that they found was that, um, particularly in Asia, couples were continuing to have kids because they wanted a boy. Um, so you, you, know, could, you could actually track 
when they stopped having kids. Um, this was known as the stopping rule. Uh, did they stop after a girl or did they stop after a boy? And what emerged is that, by and large, around the world, most couples stopped after a boy. So then the idea became, uh, why not figure out a, uh, a, a way to guarantee people the, the boy that they, that they so desire? So we move from wanting uh, sort of population planners wanting fewer children to helping couples select the sex of their child. Right? Mm-hmm. And here's where technology comes in. Right. Well, you, you, the important thing to understand, and then when looking back on this history, is that there were there was so much um, hysteria over the population issue, and and so many strategies on the table, uh, and many of them were not uh, voluntary. Several right. of them were not voluntary. Yeah. They involved uh, incentivizing contraception and even abortion, so so paying people to get vasectomies, paying people, paying women to have um, IEDs inserted. Uh, I mean, there, <laughs> one strategy on the, on the table at one point was, was to actually fly a plane over India and spray the country with a contraceptive aerial mist. Yes, I, I don't yeah. know what that is, but it, it sounds scary, and it's, of course, you know, Indians would not have any say in in whether this is um, right, in whether they're whether they're sterilized. Yeah. Um, the, the the U.S. had significant sway in countries like South Korea and India and Taiwan, um, as because of the involvement of, of population control organizations, because of um, lobbying by organizations like the World Bank. Uh, you know, significant portion of the, the um, health ministry budget in India was going toward uh, population control. Uh, you know, v- very little money for, for anything else. So against that backdrop, I mean, there, people were talking very um, uh, rationally about implementing population targets or what became the one-child policy in China. And then something like sex selection, which is entirely voluntary, um, which you know several people, several of the, the Western scientists and experts who were promoting it pointed out, you you don't need to force people to do it. Um, this is something people will actually uh, leap at the chance to to uh, use. Um, so that that then, then became very appealing. So it's a way of making it less coercive initially. And of course, again, like you say, there's a, there's a backdrop of all kinds of, um, you know, of course, you know, in the 1970s, we have the, the you know, forced sterilization campaigns in India. So against the background of a lot of coercion, this seems in a sense like a kinder, gentler way to have people voluntarily limit the size of their families. Right, yes, six million men sterilized in India uh, in just one year. Uh, horrible abuses happening. And I think there was actually a sort of cruel foresight in promoting sex selection um, in that we were emerging from the, the era of eugenics and, and sort of state-run, top-down policies. And what the uh, backers of sex selection saw was that this was something that was individual. It was a kind of consumer eugenics. And, um, and today I think that resonates uh, you know I, I think that's where we're at today we, we are moving a, away from the era of the state meddling in people's uh, business but but you have individual parents making these decisions and when you add them up of course it leads to a huge problem well and you have this wonderful phrase or a kind of chilling phrase of mothers becoming their own eugenicists um, which does sort of underlie the, 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 the way in which this is a voluntary procedure. And it speaks to something else that I think is interesting. I think much of the press coverage we see of this issue implies that the mothers themselves um, might be vulnerable to, you know, they might be responding to pressures from their husbands, pressures from their in-laws, pressures from the doctors. Um, but you, you're not quite sure about that. You think the mothers themselves are... You know, are, are as much making this choice as anybody else. Well, today this issue is now very tangled up in abortion politics. Yeah. And, and 
took some wading through that for me to, to, to make sense of it. Um, you know, when I went around and interviewed women, um, I spoke with several who had had sex selective abortions, um, who um, aborted female fetuses. And one woman, one woman in Jiangsu province in China, she told me, um, well, I did this on my own. Um, this is a matter of uh, getting face and earning respect in, in her city. Um, she had, I'd actually spent quite a bit of time with her and her husband, and she, she really called the shots in her relationship. She was a, a very strong Chinese woman. And um, I think maybe not, it's not the strongest reason for wanting to have a boy, um, but, but I could understand it in the context of contemporary Chinese society, where really people are very concerned with what the neighbors think, um, with trying to get ahead. And she was living in a community where uh, three boys were being born for every two girls. I mean, you, you just saw boys everywhere, and she wanted one as well. Um, but where, where this becomes uh, kind of convoluted is that um, because abortion rights have come under attack uh, by the... Um, uh, Christian right in the U.S. and and organizations like the uh, United Nations Population Fund uh, have had their work defunded abroad. There's they're very res- they're resistant to to say that um, this is something that women are doing of their own accord. Um, it's I, I think to some degree an easier argument for them to make to say that this is happening uh, against the backdrop of gender oppression and. And, and women are being um, stro- forced or strongly encouraged to have boys. And um, I, you know, I found a number of documents um, that the United Nations Population Fund sends out to its uh, country offices saying you should promote these stories, um, play up these stories, and, and downplay the, the uh, other story, you know, downplay <laughs> stories of, of women making their... Um, making this decision themselves. Um, but of course, reality is much more complex. And as a journalist, I'm interested in, in the reality. Right, right. Um, and you, you know, towards the end of the book, there's a discussion of, um, like you say, you have the UN Population Fund, which is concerned with attacks on its autonomy, and, and you know, Western feminists who are really at a loss for how to address this issue. Yes, I'm. You know, actually, I've been heartened since since the book came out. I, I've seen and um, and have met with a number of feminist groups in the U.S. who are taking this on. Um, they realize that in in the end, it's not just about abortion. It's really about um, selection and whether parents should be allowed allowed to select these traits in in their children. Um, and and the issues are are you know, far from going away. They're just heating up. Now we have um, fetal blood tests. Um, you know, just by taking a sample of the mother's blood at, at seven weeks of pregnancy, uh, you can determine the sex and, and other traits as well. Uh, we have sex selection during in vitro fertilization, which doesn't involve abortion at all, nice. um, mm-hmm. but is you know still very troubling at the at the level of selection at the fact that that parents are really foisting these expectations on their future children. So, mm-hmm. so there are feminist groups that are taking it on. But for the most part, I found much more happening around the issue in Asia and not that much on the international scale. And, and that was disappointing. I think this really should be an international issue. Uh, it should be something that, that uh, UN agencies take on, take uh, you know, address head-on, and and you know something that people in the U.S. know about. I actually spoke with a number of people who told me this. A number of uh, readers in the U.S. who told me this is something I I hadn't heard about. I didn't know that there were that there were millions of fewer women being born, and uh, that is troubling for me. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right that there is, you know, of course, in Asia, they are dealing with the consequences of this. And you talk about that. We've now had select sex selection going on for a generation in, in many spots in Asia. So there's now a generation of young men um, who exist in a world of, of significant demographic imbalance. Um, so their communities are having to deal with, with the consequences in a way that, of course, the West does not, is not yet dealing with. Um, but maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about that because the consequences are are not pretty. That's true, and it's, it's it makes it even more pressing for uh, for women's groups and groups that care about women's rights to take this issue on. Um, you know, early when this when the West kind of first first started to acknowledge the the practice of sex selection in Asia, is there were some. Uh, particularly economists, actually, <laughs> that proposed that as women become scarce, that uh, their demand for them will, will increase and, and people will start to value them more. That you know, It's kind of the simple supply and, and demand yeah. relationship um, that you know, eventually couples will start to have more girls and this will all even out. And what we've seen is actually, to some degree, the opposite happening. Um, in that women are, there are no, much more in demand um, across Asia. I mean, you have uh, tens of millions of, of women missing from China, uh, from India, uh, in, in China and India, in Northwest India, an estimated 15% of men will not be able to find a female partner by the 2020s. And um, so huge, huge gaps. Um, but the women are not, being more uh, valued in, in the way we would like them to be more valued, unfortunately. It's uh, the prices of brides are going up. Um, women are being bought and sold. They're being trafficked. So uh, on a very crude level, they're more valuable, but they don't control their own value. Um, I, I spent some time looking at the uh, what are called marriage tours, uh, which is this industry that's developed in... South Korea and Taiwan, uh, where men who um, have trouble finding wives in their own communities go to poorer countries, uh, often to Vietnam, uh, on these one-week marriage tours to buy wives. Um, it's it's a little bit like the mar- the mail order bride industry in the U.S., but much more pervasive um, to the point that that. Whole communities in Taiwan, the, the men are married to Vietnamese wives. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's it's become it's brought with it a lot of social problems. I I spoke with some of the uh, women who were brought over. Uh, for some, you know, the main issues is that they don't speak the same language as their husbands, and that they have trouble adapting. They're dependent on them for immigration status. But there are also cases of women being beaten. Um, there are shelters that have been set up. Uh, on the other end, in Vietnam, I went to an island where so many women have left for Taiwan that locals have started referring to it as Taiwan Island. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's become a hugely uh, systematized thing. A man pays $10,000. He... Um, covers the cost of the flight, uh, flight to Ho Chi Minh City, room and board on the other end, and, and the wife. Um, and, and then in China and India, on the other hand, men, many men can't afford that um, level of, of bride buying even. And so uh, they are finding wives through, through, much for, through illegitimate means, uh, through trafficking. Uh, and, and those women are often not going willingly. Um, their parents are buying and selling them. Um, they are, uh, they're coming sometimes from countries like Burma or North Korea. Um, so, so huge abuses. And it's, by and large, it's the, uh, um, so sex selection starts in major urban areas. It starts paradoxically actually among the upper classes of a society. And then when it comes time to marry, 
um, those men have, an e have a bit of an easier time. They can typically attract women from other regions. But it's the men at the, ver at the very bottom of the social scale, in poor areas, uh, rural areas, who have a lot of trouble. And so it's, it's those places that are becoming destinations for trafficked women. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and those you know, places also, in a sense, get emptied out of their women, sort of displacing the demographic imbalance, right? Exactly, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And in the end, of course, there aren't enough women to go around. Now, Vietnam yeah. has now developed its own problem in that um, in the past 10 years, Vietnamese have started uh, selecting for boys. So, um, you know, traditionally they had they had a surplus of women because of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and this trade developed in part after the war. Um, a, a lot of men had died, and there were then women to spare. But today, uh, it, it, the situation looks very different. Samara, do, did anyone see this coming? I mean, in some senses, this this shouldn't be rocket science, right? To know if you have sex selection at the point of birth, then 20 years down the road, you're going to have a significant demographic imbalance. Um, and you, you talk a little bit, obviously, about the economists who had a kind of simple supply-demand you know, fantasy about what would happen. But you do also talk about a couple other people who had, in a sense, a, a deeper moral vision about, about what this might bring. Well, what, what I found fascinating and, and somewhat disturbing uh, from in reading the discussions over sex selection technologies in the 60s and 70s was that there were people who saw the side effects of sex selection even then. Um, and, uh, you know, we mentioned Paul Ehrlich earlier. He, he proposed uh, a, finding a good method of sex selection in the population bomb. Uh, the, I mean, the, it was, it, it was almost a mainstream idea. Um, but there was one microbiologist in particular named John Postgate who wrote an article for the New Scientist in the early 1970s um, saying, you know, this is, these are some of the drawbacks of sex selection. Um, it's going to create an atmosphere in which women are under threat, where women may be, we may need to keep them under lock and key. Um, they may not be able to freely work. Uh, and I, I don't know if he was exaggerating in his, in his predictions or not, but the, those were all, uh, you know, there's a degree of truth to all of those. But what was striking was that still, despite that, he, he came out and said at the end, well, in the end, you know, sex selection is really the way to go. This is something we have to do because the population problem is so pressing. And um, what, <laughs> what I think is, is particularly disturbing about that is that there was so much, you had a situation where there was so much concern over a problem that, that people really lost sight of some of the side effects in, in the solution. Um, and you know, I think it's probably significant that, that women did not occupy uh, significant positions of power in the population control movement, uh, also people of color, people from the developing world. And um, you know, it was mostly, these are mostly gatherings of white men sitting around talking about the future of the world. Um, but on the other hand, I think we can see really a, a, a cautionary tale in that, in that you know, if we, we, we focus so exclusively on one issue and then, you know, we kind of dig ourselves into a hole with the, with the solution to that issue. Yeah, you've talked, you, you've written a little bit about um, the case of South Korea, for example, which was almost sort of a canary in the coal mine. I mean, it's, you know, it was, like you say, it was in, Amer in the Americans' sights early on. There was a military occupation there, it was early um, on the wave of sex selection, and now actually has has evened out um, the ratio of, of births of boys to girls. Um, so, you know, you sort of come to this present moment where, where it looks like there might be a bit of a turnaround, but you actually don't see such a hopeful story in the South Korean example. Well, the story of South Korea is complex. Uh, the, the narrative that has emerged in the, in the Western press um, is that... South, so South Korea's sex ratio birth balanced out, became much more normal, uh, 
of by 2005. And the story is that as a result of introducing a lot of gender sensitive policies, um, uh, kind of paying more attention to women's rights, uh, the, the government and the broader civil society created an atmosphere where Koreans wanted to have girls, um, where suddenly girls were more valued, and that's what you see today. What you see today is the result of that. Um, and when I went and actually interviewed people in Korea, I interviewed mothers, doctors, uh, women's, uh, women's rights activists, uh, government officials, and, and then asked them what they thought about that, I, I heard a very different story. Um, today, you know, Korea has a very conservative government. There is actually a backlash against uh, abortion rights. The abortion doctors are being put in jail. Um, it's, it's not a great moment for women's rights. Um, at the same time, the sex ratio at birth has become balanced, but what's happened at, this, at the same time is that the birth rate has fallen to such a point where, you know, at, at one point it was the, uh, the lowest birth rate of any country in the world. Um, so people are not having that many children. And the government is now extremely focused on, on increasing the birth rate and con convincing women to have more children. <laughs> that, I think, should be a, a, a more... Uh, worrying issue for for the world. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's also a situation where, where women's bodies are 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 at at the center of of uh, government policy yet again. I mean, you had decades where where the goal was convincing Korean women to have fewer children and fewer children, and sex selection was one of the side effects of that. And then now today, uh, kind of becoming um, swinging in the other direction. So it's a little hard to see where that's going to actually end up. There's, there's no reassurance that, that we're now settled at something that is you know, genuinely gal like egalitarian in any way. Democrats don't think that sex selection will be around forever in, in uh, any of the countries where it's taken hold, or that it will be practiced on the scale that it's practiced. Um, but South Korea, it's it's still it still has a lot of issues to deal with. Um, so because the birth rate's not very high, you don't have many more women being added to the population, and uh, and the country's going to have to deal with millions more um, men than women mm -hmm. over so the decades not, to come. It's not really a corrective. Um, no. And you actually do have an interesting language there of you know families where the birth rate is so low that in a sense they're doing number selection rather than sex selection. You know families that are, are that just want to have a child, um, and at that point whether it's a girl or a boy or a girl becomes less important. But there's a lot of unhappiness around um, the very very low birth rate. Sure. Yeah, I would have. Like I would have loved to give my book a happy ending. Actually, well, <laughs> it looked like you were looking for one. <laughs> well, let me let me take us to your epilogue, where you come back to the United States, um, where uh, you know, of course, sort of on the cutting edge of technology, where uh, we see sex selection here at the at the level of, of pre implantation implantation around in, in vitro fertilization, um, and. This you describe as, you know, of course, it is also sex selection and potentially sex selection according to all sorts of other traits. Uh, but the, the sort of cultural dialogue about it in the United States is very different than the way Americans talk about sex selection when Asians do it. That's true, right? The language is very different. Um, in the U.S., we say family balancing. Uh, that implies that that couples have a right to have equal numbers of boys and girls, uh, even if nature doesn't give them that, that equal number. Uh, in, in Asia, of course, it's called sex selection. Um, and it, but if you, if you look at what's actually happening, it's, it's pretty similar. Americans are by and large not doing it through abortion. They're using in vitro fertilization. They're using a technique called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. But um, they also, like Asians, they wait until they have one or two children of the opposite sex. Um, they, they're also putting these expectations on their future child. And I mean, in that sense, I think the, the Chinese couple that 
really wants to have a boy because they believe he's going to carry on the family line and he's going to um, sweep the ancestral grave and um, all of these things. Uh, it, they, they, ha- they have a bit in common with the American couple that really wants a girl because they, they want to dress her in pink dresses or um, have princess parties or you know what, whatever the reason is. In, in both cases, it's, it's, it, there's the, this expectation of how the child's going to turn out. And, of course, children often surprise us. Right, right. So uh, there's the demographic imbalance, and then there's sort of the internal pressure within families, right? You know, the, the pressure on each child to be what the parents desire for it um, becomes great. And, of course, anybody who's, you know, grown up to be queer or transgender or anything like that or, or just, just a little bit unorthodox um, you know, can speak to those, those sort of gendered expectations and, and the, the complications they cause. Oh, definitely. And what, what I find worrying is that the U.S. has incredibly lenient policies governing uh, or, or not governing <laughs> assisted reproduction. And so techniques like uh, PGD are freely available for sex selection, for, for social reasons. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's in contrast with most of the Western world where um, this is pretty strictly regulated. What kinds of regulations do we see elsewhere? You talk a little bit about Europe, of course, being a place where you know, the population is wealthy enough that, that such techniques are more broadly used than in poorer parts of the world. Uh, well, in, in most of Western Europe, you can't uh, go through PGD simply because you want to have a boy or a girl. Um, as a result, the U.S. has become a destination for um, British couples, Canadian couples, um, Western European couples, and... Um, we, you know, unfortunately, in part because we have a uh, free market healthcare system and and this tradition of not strictly regulating um, healthcare, that that's that's what's happened. We have this fertility industry that's really, it's really a business. It's really a money making enterprise, and um, sex selection is something that can be marketed, um, and it can be marketed to a group of people who are not in conventional sense sick in any way you know they don't have they wouldn't have a reason to go to a fertility specialist uh, except that they really want a girl or a boy and they would rather do it this way than via via abortion this somehow feels cleaner in some way or again it's an expensive option i think ethically i think there's no doubt that ethically it's 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 an easier it's much easier for a woman to uh, select embryos than it is to to um, terminate a pregnancy, and and that's something that that Asians um, would you know I agree with as well. I'm quite sure. I mean, PGD is also taking off in the developing world. Um, clinics are opening in South Korea, and and at that level, it's very worrying. I mean, as the technology advances, and then the ethical burden becomes really um, much lower, um, people start to question, well, why shouldn't I do this? Why and certainly not? one of the things we learned from your book in terms of the, you know, the last several decades is that it took some real work to get Asian women to be willing to have abortions on this scale in the first place. Um, abortion was not conventionally accepted, and it took a lot of work on the part of Western population planners to to make them feel that abortion was okay. And that then helped to create an environment where sex-selective abortion, well, why not? Um, so that the ethical hardening, in a sense, uh, at least within, it, within certain cultural contexts. Well, as a journalist, I was reading a lot of what my colleagues are writing about, about abortion in Asia. And you see this idea cropping up, that, um, particularly in China, that, that this is something that, People don't have the same ethical issues over. Um, there's there's not the same controversy over when life begins. Um, then it's just not it's just not um, an issue, and and that may be true today that that um, people are remarkably um, open and and pragmatic. I, I suppose about about abortion, but what I found was that it wasn't always that the case at all, and the reality. It existed when uh, Western population uh, planners 
arrived in the 1950s, and not just in China, which was you know a bit more closed, but also South Korea, Taiwan, and India. It was a very different landscape then, and um, there was a lot of work that had to be done just to convince women that it wasn't a, a good thing to have as many kids as you could. You know, the the concept of of uh, femininity really centered around having five or six kids and, and, and not sticking to one or two and, and certainly not getting rid of, uh, of unwanted pregnancies. There wasn't such so a thing. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so there is a, you know, a, a story here of, of really um, American pressure, Western pressure to, to accept abortion. Um, of course, very different from the international scene today, right? Where there's certainly American pressure internationally to, you know, to, to clamp down on abortion. Um, you know, the, the, the political scene has changed. Uh, we see members of the Republican Party in earlier decades very, very actively promoting um, abortion abroad as a means of, of population control. Oh, yes. It's changed dramatically yeah. um, in, in just a few decades. I mean, Hen- Henry Kissinger was a was a uh, big advocate of abortion overseas. I mean, the, the hypocrisy existed early on. There were, there were certainly people who supported uh, legalizing abortion overseas and, and didn't do anything to uh, back its legalization at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's true that the, the dialogue has changed significantly. And, and um, well, ab- abortion politics continues to shape this issue, and it's one of the reasons we haven't had a reasoned uh, dialogue over sex selection in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, Maura, this is this is absolutely fascinating um, and hugely important uh, material. Um, like you say, I think a lot of a lot of us in the West aren't really fully aware of the the massive phenomenon of sex selection in Asia. Uh, but asking that question also brings up questions about about population policies here at home and the use of technologies um, and how we ourselves uh, both promote sex selection abroad and different kinds of selection here at home. Uh, let me let me ask you another question. This is sort of our traditional wrap up question on the New Books Network, which is, what are you doing now? Well, I was hired by Science Magazine not that long ago, and um, I've been in the Netherlands as I was uh, writing my book, and now I'm uh, moving back to Beijing, and I will be reporting on any number of issues. And where will we be able to read your work? In in Science Magazine. Excellent. Okay, well, we look forward to it. My guest has been Maura Vistendahl, author of Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. A wonderful book, and I recommend you read it. Thanks so much for being on our show, Maura. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. We've been listening to an interview with Maura Vistendahl, author of Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls, and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. I'm Lisa Heineman, your co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Please join us again. Thanks for listening.